It is good to have the Word read over us like that. Let me pray for our time in the Word. Jesus, as we open up your Word right now, we long to hear from you. And so, God, would you speak with clarity. Anything I'm about to say that is not of you would it quickly be forgotten, but what is of you, what is bringing light and revelation from your Word to speak into our hearts, would you let it stay, and would you allow it to transform us? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. There's this story that happens in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to be in John today, but I want to open with just a quick story from the Gospel of Matthew. And in this moment, Jesus has been performing these wonderful miracles. The Gospel of Matthew is tracing Jesus' life, and, and Jesus has been giving these sermons that have been blowing everyone away, performing miracles, teaching like no one's ever taught, and then he comes to his hometown. All this time he'd been teaching and doing his ministry all throughout Israel, and then he comes to his hometown. And when he gets to his hometown, uh, this is what we read in Matthew chapter 13. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogues so that they were astonished. Notice, they, they, they saw his teaching and they were just bewildered by how profound and deep Jesus was able to teach. And they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. Get that. And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. These people who had grown up with Jesus, they knew him when he was a little baby. See, they grew up with him when he was a teenage boy. They, they knew of this child, they knew of this boy that was now a man, and they saw the amazing claims that he was making. And, and when they began to see the claims, what, what was happening was there was this jarring moment for them where they saw the, the miracles, they witnessed the teaching, they saw the power of it all, and they realized what it meant. And the question they were asking was, who does this guy think he is? Who does this guy think he is? Now fast forward about 2,000 years to our day and age, and I can't think of a question that probably is on the front mind, on the front of most of America's mind. Who does this Jesus think he is? We're still asking that question today. If you're to go to your local bookstore, if you go to Barnes & Noble, if you can find one that's still around, not many of them left in the city, but if you go to your local bookstore, you'll find any number of books of people who are taking their worldview and trying to apply it to the information we have about Jesus and trying to recommend to us who they think this Jesus in history was. Some say, you know, he was a, a cult leader. He started this cult back in the first century. Some say he was a Jewish mystic. There was this sect of mysticism in Judaism back then, and he was a Jewish mystic rabbi. Some say, well, you know what? Jesus is just a myth. There was never actually one person. Maybe there was a collection of people, and someone wrote this story to bring together a bunch of myths that are out there. Some say he was a great teacher of morals and philosophy. Who do you say Jesus is? Of all the ideas that are floating out there today, and might we even just say back in the first century as people were getting a first-hand witness and glimpse of this man and the astonishing work that he was doing, we all have the same question, and I want to pose it to you. Who do you say that Jesus is? If you say that he is God, if, the, if you take that claim, which is the claim of Scripture, if you say that he is God and you are a follower of Christ, does your life 
reflect that claim's reality. Because if he is God, then he gets say over every area of your life. He can command and tell you everything that is true of life and everything that should not be true of life. And so if you say with your mouth that he is God, does your life reflect that reality? And if you're in here today and you say, hey, I love Christianity, I love Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I can't buy the claim that he was God in the flesh, have you weighed the evidence against that claim? You are making a claim to truth by saying that he is not God. And have you looked at the evidence that supports the reality of the biblical claim that he was God? Today I want to show you with as much clarity as I can that I believe with every fiber in my body that Jesus is, present tense, God. Jesus was God in the first century and he is God today. To do that, I'm going to root us in John chapter 1. I'm going to root us in John chapter 1, the the reading we had today. And the reason I'm rooting us there is that is a pivotal, critical passage. We could be all over the Bible. I think every page in all of the Bible points us to the reality that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, fully God and fully man. And yet John chapter 1 is critical for us. In this opening to the book of John, John chapter 1, John is a historical biography, that's what this book is, a historical biography of the life of Jesus as written by Jesus as one of his best friends, one of his closest disciples. So a guy that walked with Jesus, that talked with Jesus, that slept underneath the stars with all of Jesus and his disciples. That guy, the one who Jesus called the beloved disciple, wrote this book And in the book, he gives the life and the stories of Jesus as recorded from a first-hand witness. And John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, as you heard it powerfully read over you, it's a bit of a preamble to the entire book. He's setting the stage for what his entire book is about. And if you heard it, it has a bit of a hymnal flow to it. It's got almost a spoken word element to it, doesn't it? It's got this element of poetry behind it. And the reason for that is he's trying to set the stage through both word and beauty to show you the incredible testimony that Jesus is God. Let's look at verses 1 to 3 again together. I'm not going to be able to hit every word. We could spend a year just in these 18 verses. So I'm going to kind of be going through these verses quickly. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, today's question, as we're going through this series, is, is Jesus really God? And right here in the opening verses, we see the reality and the claim of the Bible that Jesus was God. Now, let's go through what's actually being said here. We're introduced to this idea of the Word. In the beginning was the Word. What an interesting concept. The Greek term that's used here is a very important term. It's the logos or the logos, depending on how you want to pronounce it. The logos. What does the logos mean? Whatever it means, and we'll get to that, we see two things that are true about the Logos. Number one, we see in verse one, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word, the Logos, was God. So right out of the gate, John says, whatever this word is, it was God. And then right away, he says, and the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now that's very interesting language, isn't it? How can this logos be both with God 
and at the very same time, be God. What we see in verses 1 and 2 is one of the beautiful mysteries of all of Scripture, that God is revealed to us as his creation as a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's this complex divine ontology of who he is that in his makeup, in his characteristics, the Logos is both fully God and yet with God at the same time. That means that within the monotheistic structure of Christianity, God is both unified and in community at the same time. It is one God in unity and yet living in community. The Logos being the second person in that community. There is community and unity in the Godhead. This is one of the essential starting points for understanding Christianity, that God has presented himself to us as who he is, a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All three people, fully God, and yet each different persons within the Godhead. Now the question is, where does this idea of the Logos come from? Well, I want to explain this to us because I think John is tapping into two different directions when he brings up the Logos. He's got two different ideas of what this Logos is that are floating in his mind. See, John was a Jewish man. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi at the time, and John was steeped in Old Testament pictures and imagery of the Word of God. And so John is bringing to play these Old Testament ideas of the Word of God. At the same time, he was living in a Greek culture, and the book of John is written to the local people of his day that many were not Jewish but were Greeks at the time. And the idea of the Word of God has meaning in both of those cultures. Let's start with the Hebrew understanding of it. To a Jewish person steeped in the Old Testament, the Word of God would have had very significant meaning. That term, the Word constantly throughout the Old Testament, the Word of God is revealed to be how God speaks, communicates, and interacts with His people. So, for example, in Genesis chapter 15, this critical moment in Scripture where God shows up to Abraham and literally makes a covenant with Abraham and begins the entire Jewish faith and Christian faith as well. He says this, After these things, the Word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Similarly, all through the Old Testament, God's word is constantly showing up and being revealed to his prophets who then speak God's word to other people. So, for example, 1 Kings chapter 13. And as they sat at the table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. All through the Old Testament, the word of the Lord is God speaking. Now, here's what's important. When God speaks, he is not double-tongued like us. He never speaks something that is not fully true of who he is. His word is a perfect reflection of him, so much so that his word is him. What he speaks is true of him. It is in no way separated from actually who God is. And so when God speaks... It is fully true. So, in John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, when God says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, every Jewish person who picked up this book and read it, who picked up this scroll back then and read it, they would have said, I'm tracking with you, John. Yeah, I'm with you. Get it. Word of the Lord. I, understand. I get that concept. Totally good. Now, pause there. If we look at the same time at the other culture he's speaking into, the Greek culture, the Greeks, interestingly, also had an idea of the Logos, 
the logos, this word. Greek Stoicism was the major religion of the day. Just like we might say secularism is the major religion of today in Chicago, 21st century. Greek Stoicism was the major religion of the day. And Greek Stoics had this idea of the logos. The logos was their understanding of divinity. It wasn't like the Hebrew Bible where it was this personal God who spoke, but they used the word logos to, devo- to, to, to interpret this divine kind of yin and yang of the cosmos, this divine ether that held the universe together. Every Greek Stoic had an understanding that the logos was out there, impersonal, yet kind of floating off in the distance somewhere. And so every Greek that picked up the book of John would have read John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and heard, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And they would have said, hey, I'm tracking with you. Totally makes sense, John. There's the Word. I understand that. Now, pause. In my evangelism, I have found that a lot of people in our city are Greek Stoics, and they don't know it. I just want to put that out there for you. The major, one of the major religions, kind of of today, that people are buying into is actually a return to a religion of the first century, where as I get talking with people, they say, I say, you know, what do you think about religion? They say, well, it sounds like there's, I'm sure there's kind of a, a divinity that's kind of floating out there in the distance, and I'll stop, I'll say, hey, you know what, can I explain to you what Greek Stoicism was? Here's what it was, and I explain it, and they go, yeah, that's what I believe, Today's day and age has returned to Greek Stoicism. So if John chapter 1, 1 to 18 is speaking into that culture, it's a powerful apologetic in our day and age today as well. All right, back to the text. So to the Hebrew and the Greek who are reading this, the word, this is beginning to make sense. Yes, John, I'm tracking with you. Now jump down with me to John chapter 1 verse 14. Then John goes somewhere that neither the Jew nor the Greek would have ever gone. And the word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now at that point in reading this, they would attract with him all the way through verse 13. Then they get to verse 14, and both the Hebrew and the Greek, if they were holding to their old beliefs, would say this. They'd throw the scroll on the ground, and they'd say, how dare you? How dare you try to make the claim that the Logos could become human? John, that's way out of line. Divinity can never become something so fleshy and so bloody and so lowly as a human being. John, you have taken this way too far. The Logos is transcendent only. He can never become personal in nature and take on human flesh. And yet John in his preamble is fundamentally clear. The word has taken on flesh. John is clearly articulating here, and if you only had this passage, you would have to go no other place in Scripture to know that for John, his understanding of who Jesus was was that he was God made flesh, the Word. And then as if to double clarify, when he gets down to the very end of this preamble, verse 18, he says, no one has ever seen God, the only God. No one has ever seen God, semicolon, The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Now that's confusing unless you understand the Trinity. Unless you understand that no one's ever looked on the Father's face. But the only God, the Son, he has made him known and we have beheld his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father. John is absolutely clear. Jesus was fully divine. 
the Word made flesh. Now, John gives us great clarity. All through the entire Gospel of John, John's going to continue to build this understanding of Jesus, made fle- of Jesus being divine. But what I want to do right now is I want to equip you to kind of be able to handle, as followers of Christ, if someone were to ask you, is Jesus really God? Does the Bible really teach that? Because there are some people who actually mistakenly would say the Bible doesn't teach that, and they're fundamentally wrong. They just haven't read the Bible. But I want you to be able to say with confidence, fundamentally clear, yes, Bible says Jesus is God. And to do that, I'm going to give you a simple way to remember it. This is how I remember things. I love simple acronyms like this. Five A's. These five A's will help you remember all through the Bible, the message is clear, Jesus is God. The first one, attributes. Jesus possessed divine attributes. He possessed attributes that only God could have. For example, 1 Peter 2.22 tells us that he committed no sin. Now, that's not like any prophet. You go to the prophets, one of the constant things they're saying is, woe is me, I am of unclean lips, I am a sinner, how dare the word of the Lord come to me, I'm not a worthy vessel of that kind of thing. But Jesus, he never committed any sins. Hebrews 13 tells us that he is unchanging. Well, that's a quality that only God possesses. John 1, as we've already seen, says that he was before all creation. All things were created through him. Well, that's something Only God could have. Jesus shows divine attributes. Assertion, the second A, Jesus asserted that he was God. All through the New Testament, we see Jesus saying, yes, I am God. John chapter 8, Jesus takes the name of God upon himself. When people ask who he was, he responds with, I am. The name Jehovah, the Hebrew name Yahweh. That was the name that God gave to Moses on the mountain. Jesus takes it upon himself. In Mark chapter 2, he claims to be able to forgive sins. That's something that only God can do. In fact, it was him claiming to forgive sins that's the reason so many people wanted to stone him because then they said, how dare you try to forgive sins? That means you're trying to make yourself out to be God. And he stood there and he said, yeah, (laughs) that's exactly what I'm saying. Jesus clearly said he was God. Third one, authority. Jesus had authority that only God is able to have. Jesus claimed that he could forgive sins, like I just said, Mark chapter 2. He accepted the worship of men. John chapter 20, when Thomas finally, after overcoming his doubt, looked to Jesus, he said, my Lord and my God. Talking to Jesus, Jesus didn't rebuke him at that moment. Paul always rebuked people when they called him God. John rebuked people when they called him God. Peter rebuked people when they called him God. When Jesus was called God, he said, nailed it, Thomas. You got it. Yes, I affirm that. Jesus asserted that he was God. He received, or he had authority of God. He was able to calm storms. He was able to walk on water. These are authoritative statements over the creation itself. Accusations is the fourth A. It was Jesus' claim to divinity that's the reason his enemies were constantly trying to kill him. (laughs) It's subtle, but there's all these phrases throughout the New Testament if you read it. Jesus goes, does something, he's teaching, he's teaching, he's teaching, then he goes and forgives sin. And then he goes and makes a statement like, I am. And the very next sentence is, if you look carefully, and then they tried to stone him. 
<laughs> it pops up, and we can read it so quickly, but he was constantly on the verge of being killed. And sometimes you read it, and it says he suddenly somehow snuck away from the moment, as only God can do, by the way, when there's an angry mob trying to stone you. He was accused constantly of saying that he was God. In fact, this was the reason he ultimately got crucified. Because the Jewish high priest brought him into room, and they said, do you realize who you're claiming to be? And he said, I do. I, I am. I am God in the flesh. And he was crucified for that statement. Affirmation. The last A is affirmation. Affirmation from the rest of the entire New Testament that all compounds to show that Jesus is God. Let me give you just two very helpful verses. Colossians chapter 1, a very important one. Verses 15 and 19. He is the image of the invisible God. It doesn't get any more clear than that. For in, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. The clear teaching of the New Testament is that Jesus Christ is God made flesh, the incarnation of glory. Now, can I just say something? Not only does the Bible teach this, 15 years ago I accepted Jesus Christ and I am more and more captivated by the person of Jesus. I love studying the lives of people. I, I eat biographies up. But Jesus captivates me as only God can captivate me. And I think the reason for that is John chapter 1, verses 14 to 16. Let me read this to you again. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. There's something that's fundamentally true and gracious about the person of Jesus Christ. He's full of it. The more I read Jesus, the more I just say, it's incredible who you are. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness... We have all received grace upon grace. I wonder how many times we've read that verse and missed that. We have all received grace upon grace. I am amazed at the grace that Jesus continues to offer me in my life. Now I know this is just personal testimony at this point, and you don't have to receive this as a spoken word of God, but can I tell you, having followed Jesus Christ for 15 years now, waves of grace pour over my life. I, I can't explain it other than it's just waves of grace. And can I tell you the great promise of history? The great promise of history is that Jesus Christ stands on the other side of our death. And you know what's going to be offered to us after our death? If we've placed our faith in Jesus, waves of grace. Waves of it. Unceasing, unending, wave upon wave upon wave of grace. Grace and truth, grace and truth, grace and truth. And we're going to be living in the fullness of grace upon grace. And John says, that's what's happened to you when you believed on Jesus. And every single follower of Christ in this room can look at that and say, it's true. I've seen it. Something tangible about the way I've experienced the person Jesus who claims to be God has showed up in my life grace upon grace. He's made himself true. And we want to say, yeah, God, give me more. Give me more. Jesus is God. 
Now, I know there's going to be a lot of questions on this. I want to remind you, and it should be up behind me. We're going to be receiving text questions today. So if you have questions, go ahead and ask them. I want to address two common lies and misconceptions people often have. I think what I've shown you so far is a clear and compelling case that the Bible is fundamentally clear. Anyone who says that Jesus never claimed to be God in the Bible is fundamentally just not reading the Bible with clarity. That's who Jesus claims he was. But that is why I get so frustrated when people in our day and age try to sanitize Jesus by making him something that he never claimed to be. Most people, when they think of Jesus, would say something like this. He was probably some great moral teacher. Have you heard that? Professor Jesus? You know, put, put him in line with Confucius. Put him in line with Buddha. Put him in line with Oprah, right? Right, right, right. right. He's in that category. And that's saying a lot about Oprah. She's up there with Confucius, okay? But, but, but Jesus is in that category, a great moral teacher who had a lot to say and probably a lot of truth to say. Here's the problem with that. If we allow, if we just say Jesus is a great moral teacher, then we are robbing him of, of that great moral teacher's teachings because he never said he was just a great moral teacher. It's to not take him at his face value. Jesus claimed to be God, and so we don't have the right to then go to that God and say, you know what, I'm just going to take you as a moral teacher because that sounds a little bit easier for me to take in. There was a British chemist uh, Havelock Ellis, I think I'm saying his name right, Havelock Ellis, in the 1900s, he was a British physician, a social reformer in his day, atheist, very strong uh, antagonist towards Christianity. And he had a lot to say when looking at Jesus. And, and I think he actually nails it on the head, if Jesus was not God. Here's what he says. Had there been a lunatic asylum in the suburbs of Jerusalem, Jesus Christ would infallibly have been shut up in it at the outset of his public career. Now, this guy's actually read the words of Jesus. He's taken Jesus at his own words here. He just doesn't believe he's God. That interview with Satan on a pinnacle of the temple would alone have damned him, and everything that happened after it could have confirmed the diagnosis. The whole religious complexion of the modern world is due to the absence from Jerusalem of a lunatic asylum. I actually like his humor. He, what he's doing is he's reading the words of Jesus and he's saying, there's one thing we can't do. No one has the right to read the words of Jesus and say, he's kind of like Confucius. He's kind of like Buddha. He's a great moral teacher. Because as a great moral teacher, he went way too far. Think of the best professor you ever had. If he came out and told you that he was God in the flesh and he created the universe, what would you say to him? You say, I'm going to get out of this class as fast as I can. Or you'd say, prove it to me. And probably the only way he could prove it to you is if he rose from the grave. Then you might listen to him. But Jesus made the claim. C.S. Lewis comments on this very clearly. He says, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. Each person in this room has got to make a decision. And now it's too late. You've already come in this room. <laughs> right? So now you're without excuse. Okay? I've shared it with you. Jesus claimed to be God. He does not give you the option to think of him as just a great moral teacher. The greatest investigation of your life 
The thing that is most worth your time to look into is determining for yourself whether you will believe that claim to be true. It will change your life one way or the other because then you will have a conviction that is clear and you will have taken the great teacher at his own words and made a decision if you believe it or not based on the evidence. Now there is another common lie that I want to deal with and this one I think is even more dangerous and more relevant. I see it everywhere. I see it in our church. And it has to do with the resurrection. At the heart of the claim that Jesus Christ is God is the resurrection. It stands as the centerpiece of human history. The resurrection. A.D., after death, we base our years on the resurrection. The claim, the claim of the Bible is that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. Now, that is not allegory. That is not symbolism. There are other words that could have been used in the Greek to talk about resurrection as if it was allegory. The word that is chosen means bodily flesh. I can touch it. I can feel it. He rose from the dead. He was killed. He was buried in a tomb. And then he walked again. Some teachers who don't actually read the Bible itself say, you know what, that's some allegory. It's meant to show what it looks like to pursue and to keep after hard work, even when it gets tough. We can resurrect if we try hard enough. And they just haven't read the Bible. They're mistaken. That's not what it says. The claim of Scripture is that Jesus died and then he rose again. Paul, commenting on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians, says this, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, and we are all people most to be pitied. If you're a follower of Christ, and the resurrection did not truly happen, then we are a person most to be pitied because we are utterly foolish, because Jesus is someone other than who we believe him to be. He didn't follow through on his bet. He didn't follow through on his word when he said, I will rise from the dead. But if he rose from the grave, then it's true. Now, if the resurrection truly happened, that changes everything. It has to. No one comes back from the dead. All philosophy, all human history starts with one core wrestling. If you look at all the great thinkers, Plato, Aristotle, all the philosophers throughout history, they're wrestling with a fixed location that ends all of our lives, death. And from there, they're asking a thousand questions. But the problem of death has never been overcome but by one man. And if one man has truly overcome death, I want you to hear this. If there is someone who died and then came back to tell us what happens on the other side of our death, I'll tell you what, I want to know about it. Sign me up. I want to hear about it. What do you have to say? What happened? Where am I going? Is it real? Is it finite or is it eternal? What's going to happen? Can you tell me? One man claims to actually have been there and come back to tell us about it. His name is Jesus. He's the only one. Peter Adkins is a professor of chemistry, and he's a a fellow at Lincoln College at University of Oxford. And I was listening to Peter Adkins recently. He's a bit of a philosopher, and he tries to write in the world of philosophy, even though he's not technically a philosopher. And Peter Adkins, he was commenting on the resurrection. Someone was trying to push him and saying, look, Peter, you got to deal with the evidence There's no other way to explain it. He truly rose from the grave. And you know what Peter Atkins says? A professor of chemistry, a philosopher, he says, I just don't care. I don't care if he rose from the dead or not. It makes no difference to me. I don't care. Now, I believe that sentiment to be rampant in our culture. 
I, I genuinely think if you went out and talked to people on the streets, what they think about the resurrection, they might give you here and there a bit of an answer, but at the end of the day, what they're really saying is, I just don't care. But what I want to argue, that that is about the most foolish, perhaps the most foolish argument that a human being could possibly make. To not care that if there is real tangible evidence that demonstrates that a man who claimed to be God, who claimed to hold the keys to death, who claimed that the only way to salvation was through faith in his name, had died, called his shot that he was going to rise from the grave, then rose from the grave, now claims that he's seated at the right hand of majesty, interceding for the saints, and you want to say you don't care to even look into it? Your eternal soul rests on what you do with the divinity of Jesus Christ. And you don't want to look into it? That makes no sense to me, especially for a philosopher that is constantly wrestling through death. One man claims to have the key. John chapter, 1 John 2, 22 says, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. I want to look at Peter Atkins and say, you are not giving the words justice, Peter. There are three central truths that pretty much all scholars agree on when it comes to the resurrection. Whether you're an atheist scholar, a secular scholar, a Christian scholar, pretty much three truths that everyone agrees on. No one's denying these. Some people on the fringe are, but no one really listens to them. These things are all agreed on. Number one, a man named Jesus lived in the first century. Pretty much everyone agrees a man named Jesus lived. It's attested to from the Bible as well as a handful of scholars outside of the Bible from that day and age. Jesus lived, got it. Number two, Jesus was crucified under Roman guard. He was killed. Everyone agrees. There's a few people who try to doubt that. Pretty much they get knocked out of scholarship pretty quickly. Jesus was killed on the cross. Everyone agrees. And number three, you know what it is? His disciples believed with every fiber in their body that after he had been killed, they saw him, they talked to him, they touched to him, and he had risen from the grave. Now, atheist scholars admit to that, but they can't give a reason for it, and they assume somehow maybe he didn't die, maybe something happened. They cannot explain it, but everyone agrees his disciples believed with all their heart that they fully saw him alive after his death. Now, this is critical. This is why this is so critical. There is one of the greatest arguments for the resurrection that Jesus was truly God is that the disciples died for their beliefs that he was God. They died for it. Now look at this. Many people will die for a belief system. You can look on the news on a daily basis. You will find people from many religions dying for their belief system. Many people become martyrs for many different faiths. Christianity is not the only faith that has martyrs who are passionate, zealous for their faith. People die for beliefs all the time. Here's the problem. The disciples didn't just die for a belief. They died for claiming they had seen with their own eyes and touched with their own hands the body of Jesus after he had been dead. What that means is that they were not talking about faith. They were talking about what they physically saw with their eyes and with their hands and with their lives. And they died for it. When pushed under torture. Listen, the disciples, they experienced incredible torture. They were thrown from buildings, fed to lions, crucified upside down, burned on poles outside of buildings, put on stakes. The torture they went through, you and I can't even begin to wrestle through it. It was awful. All for a lie? Something they knew was not true. Consider that. Can you ever think of someone who would die that way for something they fundamentally knew they were lying about? 
When you look at people in the modern-day political era, era, when they're lying about something, the second you give them jail time, they go, whoa, 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 I was lying. I was lying. <laughs> Let me tell you about some other people who were lying too. Okay? That's what happens. Why? Because we don't die for a lie. We hold it until we get pushed. The disciples died for it. And not just one man who was crazy. All of them. They all died for it. Because they claimed that he was risen from the grave. One of the, the strongest atheist proponents today who's most pushing on Christianity, he actually went to my alma mater, Moody Bible Institute, and then he became an atheist skeptic. He writes this, talking about the resurrection. What is certain, Bart Ehrman, what is certain is that the earliest followers of Jesus believed that Jesus had come back to life. It's certain. In the body. And that this was a body that had real bodily characteristics. It could be seen and touched, and it had a voice that could be heard. And then he makes no explanation for how this is possible. He throws his hands in the air and just says, it's one of those great mysteries of history. Who knows? Well, we know. There is only one way that is possible. If Jesus was accurate in what he said, he claimed to be God. I want you to think about this for a second. The internal evidence, what the Bible says is clear. Jesus was God. The external evidence, what we see from every, all, the, all the other writings around his day and age and from logic and reason and using our rational minds to think about the fact that today, 2,000 years later, we're sitting in a church because a group of men, about 500 disciples, claim to see him alive after death. The external evidence demonstrates Jesus was God. I know it's gory, but just for a minute, think about this. We crucified him. We crucified him. I think I've demonstrated the word became flesh, and we crucified him. Now, that wasn't just a handful of Roman guards who crucified him. It was sinners like you and me who are full of doubt, who have a hard time hearing God at his own word, who live selfish lives with selfish passions. Here are the pronoun I'm using. We crucified him. It's one of the great, awful tragedies of human history it reveals our spiritual condition that we are so broken that God could show up and truly astonish everyone. He showed up and he did what you would expect God to do if he showed up. He walked on water. He raised people from the dead. He taught beautifully. He was transfigured before them. He fed 5,000. What else do you want him to do? And then we crucified him. I imagine him looking as he had nails driven through his hands at the steel and the nails saying, I remember when I made those atoms. I remember when I spun that, that nail, the composition of that nail into existence. I think about Jesus sitting 10 feet up on a pole on the top of a hill as he's being crucified thinking, I remember when I, when I made that hill when I painted it like a master painter. And I don't have to think about what he said when he looked out over the people's faces that were crucifying him because the Bible records that one for us. He said, 
as only God would be able to say, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. In the great history of God's story, we are those who pinned Jesus to the cross. We've all doubted. We all doubted who he was. We've all brought sin into the equation, and with our lives, we've demonstrated that we are far from perfect and in need of salvation, a salvation that only one man can offer us because only he was able to pay the price owed between us and God. There is salvation in no other name. It is not just that Jesus is God, he was God, and he died for your sin. We've got to believe that, otherwise we are still separated from him, both now and in the life to come. Jesus offers you forgiveness. Apart from his death in your place, we are still in our sins. And Jesus offers you, hear it, grace upon grace upon grace, sweeping over you like unending waves of grace beginning today if you will receive it. John chapter 1 verse 11, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who, re- who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let me pray. Jesus, we trust the word of God, that you are who you say you are. You are God in the flesh. And God, we trust that you're atoning sacrifice on the cross was enough for us. Wherever there has been misconceptions of you in this room, I pray that you clarify them right now, that you bring faith today, in this moment, that there would be new faith because some of us have been seeing you wrong. Some of us have been settling for a lie, but you are true. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.